focus on the group dynamic and your mm-hmm. ability to, uh, you know, as a sideman, your job is to make those in which you're working with sound and be their best. Mm-hmm. And that should also happen off stage. You know, if, if, uh, I guess what it is like, um, support in as many ways as possible, emotionally, as a friend, mm. as a hang, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times, uh, I've told like up and coming musicians, like there's a couple just, uh, moves that you can do if you go out on your first tour. Like when you, when you guys all hop in the van, everybody's all exhausted and you pull into a gas station and you, you get out, just grab the windshield wiper and wash the windows for whoever's <laughs> driving. Or, yeah. you know, when you pull into Starbucks, like learn what everybody's drink is and mm-hmm. pop in and just, it costs you $18 and 78 cents to make your whole van happy. Right. And that goes a long way. This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features, annual fee unlimited uploads and you keep a hundred percent of your royalties check out districtkid.com hey hello and welcome to the new music business podcast i am your host ari herstand author of how to make it in the new music business Today, my guest is Nick Bearden. I recorded this live from Retrolab Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, on one of my trips over there. And Nick and I have been friends for many, many years. He is a sideman. He is a bassist. He's a drummer. He's a guitar player. He is a producer, a recording engineer. He wears many hats. And uh, he used to live in L.A., and we used to play gigs around town, and he would uh, produce my friend's records, and I would always see him on stage at the Hotel Cafe playing with just about everybody and anyone. Um, Now, he linked up with Jamestown Revival, which if you don't know Jamestown Revival by now, you should, especially if you're into Americana music. They're one of my favorite bands right now. I've seen them all over the country in various venues, and I've been seeing them since they played to about 20 people at Room 5 in L.A., and I just saw them at the Fonda playing in front of 1,200 people also in L.A., Pretty cool story. He has been there. Nick Bearden has been there since the beginning, since those Room 5 days in front of 20 people, and has since played thousands and thousands of shows with them. But we actually don't spend a whole lot of time on the Jamestown story, a little bit there, but we spend uh, some time really digging into managers and the business setup and how freelancers operate, and he tells actually a really crazy story Uh, about one of the shadiest managers uh, I have ever heard about. I will let him tell that story to you as we get into it. Needless to say, Nick is a great storyteller. He's a really great guy, very talented musician. And I think you're going to have a lot of fun listening to this one. Of course, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ari Herstand or at Ari's Take. And then please sign up for the email list. That can be found at ariestake.com, where you'll be notified of all upcoming events and get regular information on the goings-ons in the music industry. All right, let's cut to the interview. 
Nick Bearden, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, so we are here in Nashville, Tennessee at Retro Lab Studios. This is Nick's studio. This is your studio. Yes. Um, I am currently staring at a wall of guitars and basses. I one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen of these bad boys I'm are literally three feet from me. Yes. And then there was that J two hundred and the J forty five in the other room that we were There's just a couple jamming. more behind you over there too. Oh man. So how many total uh, axes do you have? How many guitars? How many basses? I think when it's all said and done between what's here. And in California and Austin, I think I'm over 60 or 70. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wait, you still have stuff in California? Mm-hmm. Who's holding it for you? Um, I have a couple at my folks' house. Okay. Um, I've got uh, a couple acoustics, and I think there might be an electric out there, mm. two electrics maybe. So we met in, in L.A. Yes. Um, you were living out there. Um we met, I want to say, pre-Jamestown yeah. era, mm-hmm. uh, right before that. But, you know, most people know you as the bass player of Jamestown Revival. Yeah. And you have been touring with them now for, what's it been, eight years? It's been a, it's been a minute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how many shows would you say you've probably played with oh, Jamestown man. Revival? Um. That's a good question. I mean, I, <laughs> you have to think that hard, yeah. that long. It's it's over over a thousand easily, easily yeah. over a thousand shows. Yeah, yeah, over two thousand, maybe. Wow. I, don't know. I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, you were road dogs for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you were averaging what, like one hundred fifty on a slow year yeah. dates a year on a slow year. Yeah. Okay, you have been a working sideman for your entire career, Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And you play the drums, you play the bass, you Mm -hmm. play the guitar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you play any keys? Yes and no. Um, I technically played most of the B3 on like the first Jamestown record and parts of the second one. Oh, wow. Um, And I'm on actually a a number of other records doing the same thing. In fact, it's this thing that's sitting right here behind us. Where's your Leslie, by the way? I was uh, right behind you, right oh. over there. Oh, there it is. Um, okay. yep. One of five. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's not a joke. <laughs> the restaurant storage down what? the street. You have five Leslies. Okay. Useful. Yeah. That's yeah, totally, okay. well, <laughs> totally necessary. Okay. Totally necessary. That's a whole other podcast on yeah, the right. purpose of okay. five Leslies. Anyway, um, so you play, you play a little, so, little yeah, But I don't really know what I'm doing. I yeah. hear I hear it in my head, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of feel it in my bones, and then I uh, have to sequester myself in solitude mm. and bang out in reality what i hear in my head and Mm -hmm. and ideally capture it uh Mm. before the moment gets lost Mm. um i believe me i have tried and tried and tried to have the keyboard make sense in my mind Mm -hmm. and it just flat doesn't and it frustrates Mm. me because when i i don't dream much but when i do i do one of two things i fly a helicopter which i've never ridden in one Uh, and I rip on the B3 and I can't, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, to me, if, uh, as backwards as this sounds, I think it's because of, you know, when you play drums, you kind of, uh, tend to kind of like right side dominate with your like kick is your, is your oomph and your, okay. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Same thing with the, with the acoustic guitar or the electric right. or whatever. It's like right hand is a lot of your, your, your booty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the left hand is the melody with the piano and it's the other way around. So if I, right. it, it's, as backwards as it sounds, if the bass was on the right side and mm. the high 
part of the piano was on the left, huh. I feel like I could totally do it. Yeah. But yeah. it just feels like I'm hmm. swimming upstream on the thing. So, I mean, most of your work has been on the bass, right? Well, it depends on the era. So okay. there are people that to this day, if you were to pick them off the street in Northern California and be like, hey, do you know this Nick guy plays yeah. bass in the American band? Like, no, he's the drummer in this other band. Uh, okay. You know, so or like, you were drum- drums first? That was my first instrument okay. kind of period yeah um uh and then i started playing guitar shortly after that Mm -hmm. and so really in the grand scheme of things they kind of started around the same time but when i was in northern california i i did a bulk of my like professional work on drums yeah so when you're in la Mm -hmm. um you are i mean gigging just mm-hmm. taking whatever gig uh you're 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 in like the hotel cafe singer songwriter scene right mm-hmm. for the most part yeah the first thing that really kind of uh started um uh, picking up steam was i worked with an artist who actually lives here in nashville now by the name of sarah hayes okay um and she was um very promising at the time and yeah. up and coming and um kind of like a blonde singer songwriter orange county pop type of thing um who has since turned country and written like you know number two hits for rascal flats and she's got a very successful writing career for uh, a bunch of people here yeah um but that put me in the position to be up in la playing at the hotel and playing at the roxy and Mm. playing what were you playing with her um acoustic guitar okay um well acoustic and electric and and vocals and i tour managed for her and uh you know did guitar parts how many her record. Uh, dates were you doing with her what kind we of did tours a lot we did yeah. a lot yeah we did a a number of cross-country tours okay. uh, we, we she had bought a um like a 15 pass and we'd mm. hop out and loop around for three four weeks at a time come home for a little bit play some la shows and then fly out and do something and then come what back what was her and, story where did where did these fans come from was she signed she was- had um you know, there was that kind of golden era where um, television placements were... Ah. Yeah. It's like early 2000s? Uh, this would have been... 2000s? No, I started playing with her in 2007. Okay. I still, think 2008, yeah, somewhere around that's, there. Yeah, that was the Grey's Anatomy, One Tree yes. Hill, she, so one, Scrubs era. Yeah, mm-hmm. one one thing that really kind of... Uh, in fact, as I'm mentioning this, I'm noticing that she's signed the back of this guitar here. Oh. It says Shine 2009, <laughs> which was like a running joke of uh, one of the tours we did. Um, she had, if you remember that show, The Hills? Oh, yeah. There was the season finale where... Oh, what is it like Heidi and Spencer I never I, I know of this I'm, show I've never seen it yeah well I this is like the reality version it's a reality of the show scene, right? and there was like the final scene where I think they broke up with each other or something and there's okay. like this big dramatic moment mm-hmm. and one of Sarah's songs came on yeah and it was really it was actually a really interesting observation in how not to fumble things in the music industry because mm-hmm. I don't think that the song was um out yet in like a official capacity sure. in terms of uh, iTunes, iTunes and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and I think it had been previously recorded on another record that might have been out, but the version that was placed in the TV show was not, but mm. it was on her MySpace page. It was like kind of really discombobulated. <laughs> MySpace, yes. um, and I think that it was literally, it happened by way of um, the music's, let's see, how did this work? We had like a, a licensing and admin guy or something. Uh, I think his name was Michael Plin. Mm-hmm. And he had taken 
like an unmixed version of the tune down to somebody at a like a music supervisor something yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so it's just like the door is open in the office and they're playing the song and somebody's walking down the hall and takes yeah. a double take and says like hey what is this i need this song and yeah. i need it like immediately if not sooner for the season finale for something so oh, they scrambled wow. real quick yeah to get it in their hands mm. um and we just flat didn't have time to get it like up in the proper channels and oh overnight, I remember her MySpace plays went from, you know, a, a, a respectable couple thousand sure. to like over a million something plays Whoa. in less than 24 hours. Man, yeah. MySpace. And, mm-hmm, and like the YouTube channel was blowing up and people like in Europe were sure. saying, where can I get this? And they were yeah. downloading the wrong thing and the publishing <laughs> was all jacked up. Oh, and, man. Um, but it put her on a new map, if sure. you will. Um, and then she, from there got a couple other pretty choice placements. I think they were, I don't remember the name of the show, but she had written a song called lovely mm-hmm. and it was like the theme song or the opening theme. Song. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. man. That was such the era. You know, yeah. I was paying attention, uh, from Minneapolis at this time mm-hmm. to all of these artists. Yeah. Um, I missed Sarah Hayes. I mean, I know the, the knew the name, but yeah. like, you know, this was like the Joshua Radin, yes. Ingrid Michelson, yeah. Miko mm-hmm. era, um, all of that. Those artists that were just like, you know, Gary Jules, all these hotel cafe oh, artists Jules, yeah. that, yeah, that were just like, you know, the music supervisor would show up to the hotel cafe and just cherry pick and, and yeah, just be yeah. like, Hey, Oh, Josh, you got this, uh, that song. Is that recorded? Yeah. Uh, not yet. Can you record it and get it to me by next week? And I'm going to place it yeah. <laughs> like in Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. And you know, all these artists were getting so many places. Like the rescues then, were just, Oh, the rescues were crushing. With the, oh my gosh. So many. Yeah. They were crushing. I mean, just all of those artists back then. Um, and then they would do Rachel Yamagata, like mm-hmm. all of that. They would come mm-hmm. through. Uh, they did that hotel. Carrie Brothers orchestrated oh, yeah. the the hotel cafe tour. Yeah, so I was like paying attention on this. I'm like, man, got to get placements. And mm-hmm. so I like tweeted one of my songs to the One Tree Hill music supervisor because uh, I thought it would be perfect for the show. And she like tweeted me back and was like, oh, I love it. And like placed my song in One Tree. It was an incredible placement. And like, you know, luckily it was on iTunes. The iTunes skyrocketed that Mm. night when the song, because this was that era. This was probably like 2010. So a few years after that. But Mm -hmm. man, it was like, I was trying to follow that Hotel Cafe sync model because I saw it was just like exploding all of these singer-songwriter careers. I I feel like within the last... 10 to 15 years or so, that was kind of the one golden era where there was a little bit of a science to it. Mm-hmm. Like if you lived in LA and you were a competent songwriter mm-hmm. and you had halfway decent social skills yep. and the understanding and aptitude to be able to just like pop off the couch, go down there and yep. and just hang and like be it. in the scene and yep. like, you know, when they would close the doors late at night and like Brother Sal was rocking at the piano yep. on that top yep. part and you just kind of like loitered around all the soups were hanging, out soups were hanging. Yep. and yep. um and it just you could kind of just point and knock it out of the park yeah um and i don't know if it got oversaturated or really kind of what happened but there was just i mean it that was kind of the era where um you know it was it was a very exciting time it it, it hadn't really formed into what it is now which is such a machine and there's such a business and all these sync licensing companies there weren't that many sync licensing companies and so like the music supervisor in this interesting 
time period where they didn't have the budgets where they could afford the major label, major publisher records. Now, Alexander Patsavis broke this wide open when she was working on The O.C. This was the first TV show that was really placing lots of indie music. This is very early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And because of that, then she moved over to Grey's Anatomy and was breaking these indie artists left and right. And so then other TV shows like Scrubs and One Tree Hill were like, oh, we want to do that. That's really cool. They're breaking right. all these artists. And so it became like this cool thing to place indie music that that nobody had heard of that, you know, and they could afford it. It was cheaper. It was much cheaper because they didn't have to go to the major labels. They didn't have to go to the major publishers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but the the soups had to do their, the work because they weren't getting pitched these indie artists because there weren't one-stop sync licensing companies like there are now. There's right. so many now. Yeah. And back then, there really weren't any. And so the suits were out like trying to find it. Like, well, where do we find the music that works our show? The Hotel mm-hmm. Cafe was kind of where it was. And yeah. like, unfortunately, they're not really doing that live discovery as much yeah. anymore because you know now they know where to go. They have their channels that's already in place. It's right. like, oh, I go to these, you know, 10 sync licensing one stops where I know I can find stuff that I can clear by this afternoon mm-hmm. and uh, and it kind of works that way but mm-hmm. yeah it was an interesting fun era so did you meet Sarah at the hotel cafe I did not no okay. um, I was when I first moved to Southern California um, I wound up in Orange County and oh, okay. um, I started playing with a San Diego uh, based artist and we had shared uh, it wasn't Sarah it was somebody different um we had shared a bill together at a venue called the coach house in San Juan Capistrano. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, it, it was us opening for Sarah and she had a different band at the time mm. and her manager was there. And, uh, after I was done playing with the opening artist that I was supporting, uh, the manager pulled me aside and he's like, Hey man, I, you know, I really like, um, your ability to support this artist that you were playing with. And I felt like you, you know, stepped up when you need needed to and kind of stayed out of the way when you needed to. And, um, uh, what's your availability to play with other people. And mm. I think he made some kind of, you know, slimy managery statement of like, whatever she's paying you, we'll pay you triple or oh, something. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. Um, and, uh, as it turns out, I think that that conversation was on like a Friday night and by Tuesday I was Sarah's new guitar player. Wow. Um, and we had a show, I think that Thursday or Friday. So she had a budget. I mean, she mm-hmm. was, was this budget, was she funded by someone or was this budget because she was drawn and selling tickets? Um, I'm trying to remember back at that time, kind of how that shakeout was happening. Yeah, there was some private investments. I think sure. that she, her manager at the time. Uh, I think somehow had her also doing um, speaking of placements like mm-hmm. she would sing not as herself but her vocals wound up on a bunch of stuff that wound up in like uh, soap operas and shit and so oh, there was okay. like money that was coming in that okay. way um, but she did pretty well and yeah. you know and I mean, it, the sync, sync pays pretty well so yeah, you can tap I, into that and especially the, the, the frequency mm-hmm. for sure there was then she signed like a co-manager deal and the guy that was the co-manager he had some pretty deep pockets okay. um, and uh, that kind of helped fund some things and then we started doing some like college dates where oh, like sure. her and yeah, I would either go well. out as a duo and make some bread or we'd go out and do like an anchor date with the full band. Did she we play dr- any instruments? Did she play any She played piano. Okay, yeah. Cool. And she uh, she would write on the piano and mm-hmm. some of the songs she'd play entirely herself. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it got to the point where we were dragging around a six-piece band. Wow. Um, and, and you were tour managing then too. I was, yeah. I was like her, her, 
her older brother, her tour manager, her vocalist, her lead guitar player. How did her, you know how to tour manage or what that was, what that meant? Um, I had done it before in other groups that I'd oh, worked yeah. with. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really part of what it was is I was just the, <laughs> like the, the most experienced in that entourage. Okay. You know, they, they certainly weren't going to hand over the money to some other right person in that operation. Sure. And stuff, you know? So in the other groups, I mean, how does, how does one learn to tour manage? Like, how did you let you just learn on the job? It's like, Oh, so yeah. did someone hand you a job description? Did someone no. say, this is what you do? I had no idea what I was doing. No. So Absolutely no idea. When they're like, can you tour manage? You're like, yeah. Well, I, what do you, what, what does that mean? I knew for one, I was the, I mean, not like when I was 20, how old was I when I was like 25 or 26 or something when mm-hmm. I was playing with her? Is that right? I was the oldest guy yeah. in the operation. So like, I'm not going to be bossed around by some mm-hmm. young buck that okay. really has never done this before. Like some of the people that we were out there with, they hadn't like literally never toured before. Mm. I'm not saying that as like an insult to them in case they're listening. It's just, that was the way that it shook out. Sure. So I think when the manager was trying to think of kind of the hierarchy of how this whole thing could make sense. He's like, you know, if there's going to be somebody that's going to have to be rattling people awake at 5 a.m. And, yeah. and getting them down to lobby call and like making sure that you're arriving on time and mm-hmm. collecting the money properly and able to understand the contracts at the end of the night and um, can kind of wrap your whole head around this thing or, or just understand like where this city is in relation to the other city and not yeah. wind up five hours in the wrong direction. Right. Um, he kind of put so, that I mean, on me. Cause, uh, so did you have, so this is, you're saying like what, 07, 08 kind yeah. of thing? So this was, what, did you guys have a, a Garmin at the time? Oh, we were Garmin, Garmin to the max. We Garmin. had, we so had all... Post MapQuest, pre We had the MapQuest in the backup. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. yes. And so you you knew basically basic job description of tour manager is just like, Make sure you get to the venue by load-in time. So did they send you all the contracts? Did you yeah, so I would these? get all the contracts. Mm-hmm. I was in regular contact with the booking agent and the manager. Okay. And all. I mean, it was it was like a full-time job, honestly. Yeah, for I sure. mean, whether I was on the road or not, every single day there was still stuff that I had to do. Yeah. And um, that whole operation was quite a bit of like all hands on deck for quite a while. Okay. Um, and it was really kind of an interesting thing because she, she really did start to pick up some trajectory. We were we were uh, spilling out of places that we initially built draws in. And, and sh- next thing you know, she was top billing at the Roxy and, and doing, you know, residencies at that's Roxy. That's 500 some mm-hmm. tickets. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we played cool. there pretty regularly. I mean, we, you know, it's like we built it. I don't know, we never did like room five, but it was like smaller sure. spots like that. What mm-hmm. was that place um, on Highland or whatever the, Genghis Cohen, like you know, oh, we, oh, uh, I think it was Genghis, Genghis Cohen. Like Cohen? we'd start That's out in like yeah. small, small places like that, and yeah. then it just kind of yeah. like went to the Mint, and then it went to the Key Club, and then it went to sure. wherever that place was. That uh, the, was the Knitting Factory. Like we used to play there all the time. Now, oh, okay. now I think it's a grocery store. Yeah, it's not there anymore. Um, but uh, that whole thing really started to to kind of take off quite well. But um, unfortunately, she. We didn't realize this at the time. Like we'd kind of give her a hard time because she seemed to be sleeping a lot and um, just kind of overall low energy. Like we'd show up to a venue and she'd kind of shuffle in and drop her stuff in the mm-hmm. green room and just kind of duck out for a little while. And her voice seemed to kind of blow out um, mm-hmm. a little prematurely. And as it turns out, when we got home from one of the tours, she went to the doctor to see what was going on. And um, she had some autoimmune uh, deficiencies oh, and got no. diagnosed with lupus. And oh. Yeah. And so the doctor said, okay, well, you know, I know that, that music and touring and whatnot is what you do, but 
first thing that you need to do is like no more planes, no more trains, no more automobiles, no more hotels, no more late nights, no more long drives. Like we had to shut the entire machine down. And then this also happened around the time that, um, you know, I don't want to get too much into specifics, but I had kind of figured out over the course of uh, a little bit of investigating over time that she was getting massively ripped off by her management. Um, what? Yeah. And that How was, so? um, what did you find or what did you let's see? How can I say this without getting in trouble? Um, who's gonna, who's gonna, you're gonna get in trouble with, with who? Well, you're not gonna get in trouble. She's, Fuck these guys. No, if they, yeah, they were ripping yeah, her off. Yeah. I mean, let's call them up. I'll call them out. Well, really That's not cool. Really, man. really that, what it was that is boils my blood to hear that. You know, yeah. managers are taking advantage of their the guy, artists. That just that drives me insane. The manager was always kind of a douchebag, mm-hmm. and, and nobody, I never really cared for the dude too much. Sure. Um, I had to kind of dance a fine line and, and kind of nod and smile and be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm. even though I, I knew that it wasn't just the right thing. But yeah. what what really started to be a red flag to me is he would tell me things like, okay, well, when you're on tour and you get this check from, like, when we went and played some college. Sure. Um First of all, the checks were always written out to him. Oh, um, yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah, that is um, not but okay. half the time he's he, not the agent; he was the manager. He was the manager. Yeah, but check no, this out. Definitely not. So, okay. so check this out. He was the manager, but he owned the label that she was on. Mm. She, he managed her. He managed her producer, mm-hmm. who was also a co-writer on her stuff. Mm. And it's like every oh, he's like triple dipping, dude. Here's here. the thing: you take yeah, you, <laughs> oh you, you take that 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 triangle and the and like the trickle out of like every way of monetizing something, yeah. and he just figured out a way to funnel every dime through yeah. his bullshit. Wow. Um, and he would do. He was such a manipulative dude to where when I first signed on, there was this big carrot of like, Oh, I've got Interscope or whoever it was like some major label Mm -hmm. was super interested in her and they legitimately were. Um, but it was like, he looking at it after the fact, what he did is he, he drug her around town and showed her to all the the majors Mm. with zero intention of ever signing anything with them. He just wanted to create the buzz that Mm. she was a hot commodity with the, with the, absolute intention of putting her out on his label Mm. thinking that once the record came out it was going to explode Mm -hmm. and then he was going to get all of the money because all the placements and all of the sinks and all of the sales and so on and so forth but you know as a as another red flag thing like i as her tour manager he the manager asked me Mm -hmm. to put up my own money to help pay for physical CDs. So I I paid out of my own pocket. What? Her, it's fucked up. That is- and then and then when he would sell like CDs, he he like reimbursed me for that at some point in oh time, a little bit, but I still yeah. to this day think that I was never fully paid back for that. So shit. like they would make would the would the venues make the checks out right. to him so, too? So so back to that. So we would play a college and then yeah. and then because I was a TM, I would get the check, but he would tell me like, "Oh, just, you know, don't don't open the envelope. You need to make sure that the next day to overnight this from like FedEx to me so that I can deposit it into the account to then like pay off the credit card balance that you guys are racking up, like paying for hotels and gas and stuff like that. Really what it was. And he would always tell me things like, you know, it's not a lot of money. So we need to make sure that we like get it in the account soon because we're not operating very much. Well, he would tell me that we were getting paid like 1200 bucks to go play some college, which Uh I was like, well, that seems like a lot of money. Sure. 
No, we were getting paid like eighty five hundred bucks. Whoa, you know. And how did you? But well, because one open time, envelopes, right? He wouldn't that, let you. No, I didn't open up the envelopes. <laughs> but one night, I was like, God, this just doesn't add up. Yeah, like how much I'm getting paid, how much they're getting paid, how much the gas bill is, how much right. this and everything else. Like, there's just no way that this is sustainable. And mm. so one time, when I was in a hotel, um. I held up the check just right in the light on the nightstand and I could see how much the amount was. But then I like pulled up my emails of how much he said that we were supposed to be getting paid for that show. And I was like, this ain't right. And I just took mental note. And then several checks later, Uh um, I noticed the exact same thing. And there was a couple other things. Because with colleges, it's a, it's a guaranteed set amount. It's not based on tickets or anything like Mm -hmm. that. So they're, you're getting a check at the Mm -hmm. end of the night. It's already printed. They have a lot of money and they, if they don't spend it, they lose it. So they will gladly pay like, you know, a a clown balloon making dude, a boatload of money to come and do his thing to literally nobody in the student union. We've all done that. (laughs) I've done the college circuit. Yeah. It's, it's, um, but there was a couple other things like I, uh, without getting into details, had figured out one time that there was another like placement situation that she was in where there was kind of like a conspiracy between the manager and some other people on her business team that she trusted mm. that they were having a like side conversation about money and yeah. saying like, essentially don't let her know how much she's actually going to get paid for this. Let's keep this secret between us. And she started to kind of figure out, I think like, Hey, something isn't right. And so she inquired about it. Like, Hey, I think maybe I'm owed X amount. And then their, their side conversation was like, well, let's pay her what she thinks it is because it's still like, pennies on the dollar what she's actually going to be making and this will shut her up and then we can actually oh gosh and once i saw all of that i was like i just can't keep this in clear conscious so i went and 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 had a chat with her one time we went out to lunch i was like sarah i'm so i mean she'd been working with this guy since she was like 13 or 14 totally totally trusted him never thought that he would you know do her wrong like this and i was like you are not gonna believe what i'm about to tell you but x y and z and she was just completely shocked and heart like no way that's that can't be and then once i showed her like in writing like what was mm. going on she's like holy shit and so she literally kind of like shut down her own machine in addition to what her doctor said like she fired everybody she wow. got she got rid of she just didn't know who to trust you sure. know and it, it, it boiled down to Man, i think me and like up. one or two other people in her whole operation. that is so fucked up and i don't know how these people sleep at night i don't understand I don't how they can how they think that that's okay. You, yeah. you come up with a, a deal with your client. This is what I'm taking. I'm taking 20%, whatever it is. Yeah. And now you're lying to her yep. about the money that's actually coming in. Yep. How the fuck do you sleep at night? Like, know. how does anybody think that that is okay? That yeah. is okay business. Like, did this dude have a gambling problem, a drug habit? I like, don't what know. the fuck? I think like, he was that just is so messed up. I think he was, um, there was like a certain sense of, delusion of sorts of where he fit in the managerial role um and i really do think that he did have like a in his hands he had the potential of a golden ticket and he just blew it by by trying to weasel and manipulate and what was interesting is like after that whole thing kind of shook out we 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 went a little radio silent for a bit and then i think word kind of spread around town that she was kind of a free agent again and Mm -hmm. so next thing you know her and i are going back and i'm you know, right back in the major labels again, sitting across the table mm. from people that a year or two prior we had played some songs to. Yep. And um, this time 
they would kind of dance around it like, so uh, are, are you uh, still? Oh, you're not working with that guy anymore? Yeah. We never liked him in, in the oh, first gosh. place. You know, I was like, God, this man. Yeah, that's that's a that's an awful feeling to feel as though. Is this dude been, still working in the music uh, industry? Have you checked up on this guy at all? You know, not. I haven't really checked up on him. Okay. Um, I I'm a little bit of a hippie in that I feel like that's kind of bad vibes and bad juju and and so i don't really want to like go there i want to check up on this asshole i want to make sure he's not doing this to anybody yeah. else like that it, my my assumption would be that he totally is and he kind of had a little bit of a science what he was doing he'd like prey on young talented women not in like a creepy you know i don't think he ever crossed those boundaries okay. but it was just he knew that he could find orange county wealthy parents who oh. believed in their talented kid sure and that he was able to leverage some certain successes that he had mm. to then have them just completely trust him to do whatever the fuck manipulation he wanted to do it's sad oh man and so <laughs> what did we learn from this situation that uh if any of these you know people who are listening, these maybe younger artists, if they're getting approached by managers, what are some checks? What do we, you know, I guess, I guess always audit your manager, always double exactly. check the numbers. Yes. Like don't, that, unfortunately, you want to trust your people, but you know what? If they get cagey, if they get weird, if you ask them about numbers, then they're hiding some shit. Like, check this out. So yeah. the checks would go, he had his own publishing company. Mm-hmm. And one time, I think, because he's a songwriter, this right? might have no. been my idea where one time we were on tour and I told her, I was like, hey, you know, these checks are like, you don't, do you have any idea of like how much money's going in and out of your accounts? And yeah. and not cause she didn't care. She just like, didn't, she's like, no, actually I don't, I don't know what that is. So mm-hmm. her and her manager, um, opened like a joint checking account, but instead of the checks being made out to that checking account, mm-hmm. they would still get made out to his like publishing company, oh, uh, checking account. Mm-hmm. So the, the 8,800, this is where I figured out what was fucked up is yeah. he, he would deposit the like $8,500 check mm-hmm. that I was told was 1200 bucks right. into his account. Then he would do a transfer from that account for 1200 bucks oh, into the joint account and be like, yep, here's your oh, 1200 bucks. Yeah, it's not like, cool. bro, you wow. are just, wow. it's like laundering and funneling. And yeah. Just so, oh man, this guy needs to be taken down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he I, oh. I think there were some lawsuits and there oh, was some. Oh good. I would, man, I would go after this guy so hard. She eventually signed uh, with warner chapel out here in okay. nashville and i think they brought in some heavy hitters and they kind of like knocked on his door and like good hey asshole good you're you, uh uh-uh. yeah this is gonna fly wow but to this day i don't think she makes money off of those records i think he still somehow gets Weasel all of that, yeah. those rights or whatever mm-hmm. yeah. Ugh, that's yeah. man that is infuriating lesson learned i mean you know you kind of have to unfortunately you're going you know the lesson is have an attorney check your shit and have it be an attorney that is uh like outside of yeah the or your business manager who's out who's not brought in by your manager like you need your own people yeah and uh probably working with a producer who's also repped by the same person i mean there's a lot of conflict conflict of interest interest for sure yeah so so that whole thing implodes and blows up yeah now you're not on the road as much uh and now you're just kind of picking up gigs Uh, how are you finding gigs who are are you playing with dude back to the hotel cafe right so um yeah by this time i was living i had made the move from orange county up to hollywood proper okay and uh i used to live in los Feliz, about a block and a half away from this the um subway 
Mm-hmm. So I just walked down there and paid the two bucks and, and pop over to the hotel. And, you know, at that time I would not even pay attention to who was playing mm. or anything. And having played there a hundred thousand times, I right. knew all the door guys and they'd yeah. just be like, Hey man, come on in. And, uh, if I didn't have somewhere to be or something to do, it, I was at the hotel Yeah, and, um, some of it was just kind of paying attention of like, okay, there's five, uh, uh, drummers doing all the work, whether it's so-and-so or whatever. Yep. And, and I think to myself, okay, if they have all the gigs, but then all of a sudden they get a big one and they got to leave for a while, like who's filling in for these things? Sure. So I never really wanted to like steal anybody's thing or try to like elbow my way in. But it, the, a lot of the conversation just started with the fellow side guys of mm. just talking to them in the green room and being like, uh, just getting their advice. In fact, like Justin Glasgow, I never yeah. met him, uh, until living here, and uh, for the listeners, it's a it's an LA dude who's just a complete ace, and he plays all the instruments, mm-hmm. and everybody loves the guy. Um, a lot of the gigs that I got were because he was the dude that played with somebody usually, but then he was on some other gig, mm. and so I would I was like inadvertently his. He sub. Was, you know, when I got to the LA and the hotel cafe scene, I was going to the hotel all the time. This mm-hmm. is like 2010, 2011. Justin Glasgow was on every single gig. Like yeah. I would see him on stage playing every instrument. One yep. night he was on drums, yep. one night he was on piano, another he was on guitar. Yeah. I'm like, man, who is this guy? He had all the gigs. Yeah, and eventually <laughs> I wound up being one of those dudes where I, yeah. you know, my the trunk of my car was full of all kinds of stuff and I'd show up at 7 and leave at 11 and I'd played with four different people wow. and I got charts all over the So how did you become and... that guy? So you just talk to all the other side guys all the other freelancers and be like hey i play bass i play drums if you need if you need a sub like some of it some of it was they had seen me play with sarah or some of the other artists that i would just kind of like uh moonlight with in and out of the hotel Mm -hmm. um and then you know when you're there enough you it's it's not a very big place so and i'm six foot three so (laughs) you know it's like (laughs) i kind of stick out yeah and um I would I would also make a point to try to have at least once, if not two or three times a year, kind of a big blowout hang at, at mm. whatever house I was living at, and nice. I just invite everybody, every musician that I knew, and it's just kind of like you know bring your bring your instrument, and we'll just jam and stay up all night long and hang and network and schmooze, and and um, mm-hmm. there's really no agenda behind it other than just trying to like I'm very community and friend oriented, and I just like yeah. just connecting those dots, and um, I feel like the the hang and and being there and supporting people and and making it a point that like hey I'm going out to see your show not because I really want anything out of it I just want to support the music community nice. and then um, one thing will lead to another and they'd be like hey I feel like I've seen you play with somebody what's your deal or yeah. don't you play this why are you playing this instrument and I'd friends be like, want yeah, to work with their all. friends and it's just that you're building relationships yeah. and it's like it, it sounds like it kind of happened organically mm-hmm. where you were you know yes some could call that hustling I mean you're out most nights yeah. but it's like you know at least you enjoy doing it and you're yeah. meeting people in a, in a genuine way mm-hmm. um, well and I think too there was um, maybe a short list of certain dudes that, that would get called where in the event that um, there's one type of sub where it's like people know in advance, like, Hey, I've got this show booked in three weeks Mm -hmm. and, and you know, so-and-so can't make it. Can you do it? Then there's the, like, the show is tonight at eight, it's six (laughs) and -and so-and-so missed their flight or like broke their arm skateboarding or their car broke down, whatever. Like, can you be there like right now? Yeah. And so there was an era when I lived in LA where, 
uh, this bass right here that's all beat to shit and this Telecaster over here that's beat to shit, uh -huh. they both rattled around in the trunk of my car, not even in a guitar case. <laughs> 24 <laughs> 7 mm -hmm. okay. and even though you know in, in both places that i lived in hollywood i was within minutes of the hotel yeah you know the drill the traffic there can be a fucking nightmare right and there was one too many times where i'd get the phone call and i might even just be at trader joe's or like a mile away yeah. and i would need to be there in 45 minutes but i didn't have time to like go home and grab a guitar and a pedal sure. board and like bomb down to the hody um and so i just thought if i can be kind of on call all the time yeah then that will also set me apart from the rest a cool. little bit and you know you show up and and there's uh, obviously the the people have some pretty um uh, uh the expectation is like okay, you can hang. You might not know all the parts, but just like keep an eye on the keyboard's left hand. And right. <laughs> when, as, as a musician, once you learn how to use your ears and listen and mm -hmm. use your intuition and stay out of the way and like do what's, what's needed, yeah. um, I think I helped out a lot of people in certain pinch moments nice. that, um, that, uh, I don't, that helped. Yeah. So, I mean, that's great. And then when it came to, because like your most high profile gig now that you've been you've had for eight years is Jamestown Revival, and mm -hmm. um, how did that happen? How did you meet the non brothers, uh, yeah. <laughs> Zach and Jonathan, who were kind of doing their acoustic duo thing for a little while? Mm -hmm. uh, I remember seeing them at Room Five Hotel Cafe. Like Room Five holds what held sorry R.I.P. held like sixty people or something. Yeah, it was a tiny that. little listening room. Yeah. yeah, maybe not even that many, fifty people. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, right. I mean, they were doing the acoustic thing and then it just seemed like they just like exploded. What, how did that happen? Yeah. How did you find them? Well, um, so there's actually a little bit of a connection to, uh, to Sarah, to that. There's a show that takes place. I don't know if it still does anymore, but it was, um, it was once a year for a number of years and it was put on by these guys, uh, Jeremy Koff and Chris Ang from Coffee House. And okay. the evening or the show was called Evening of Independence. Okay. And uh, I don't know if it was some kind of a benefit show or, or what it was going on, but it was at the Ford Amphitheater. Oh, yeah. Nice, I had beautiful. played that with Sarah in like 2009 or 10. Was that like 1200 cap? I think so. Something like yeah, that. It's a really Outdoor, cool spot. Nice amphitheater. Uh -huh. um, but so I had played that. So I was like at least familiar with what the evening was, sure. but I completely forgot that that was uh, an event that took place. And um, I was uh, I'm friends with, I think, a mutual dear friend of ours, Asia Grammer, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, who at the time was not Asia Grammer. Right. Um, and she called me up and said, hey, uh, Katie Shorey and I are going to pop down to the Evening of Independence. Um, do you want to come with us? And mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Who's playing? And she said, uh, rattle off some people. And uh and then she said, uh, Alan Stone was playing oh, yeah. and he and I had met on a co-writing session, uh, mm. long before anybody knew who Callan was. So I was like, man, not only do I want to hang out with my friends, but I'm really curious to see what Alan is up to these days. Yeah. So she swung by and I think picked me up and we went down and, and, um, found our seats and then, uh, they dimmed the lights and out walks Jamestown. And mm. I had no idea who they were. Yeah. I mean, nobody did. At the time, it was just uh, a duo, right? It just was just them. Group. And they had been in town. F I mean, they were still dripping wet from getting into town. Like they okay. had been in town for maybe a couple weeks, if that. Originally from Austin? Austin, yeah. Okay. Um, and they moved to LA. They moved to LA, gotcha. yes. Um, so they come out and it's just Zach and John. And then they had, um, oh, because I'm talking about his name, is slipping my mind. But a uh, a friend of ours, um, I'm going to say playing drums, but it's like kind of a conservative 
way of putting it. Like he had like a kick drum and a tambourine. He's kind of like holding down the beat. Oh, okay. And the music was very similar to another group that I had worked in. I was like, man, I haven't heard this kind of music in, in a while. Mm. And it, 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 it's something that makes sense inside of me, if, cool. if you will. And I was like, yeah. okay, I, I'm on their wavelength. I get this. And, and, and this style of music right now is not super prevalent in, in Los Angeles. And we could use this. It's sure. great. Um, but I had noticed that they didn't have a bass player and, um, you know, I, side note, like I, I have a little bit of a, um, I guess you could call it like a pet peeve of bands that don't have bass players. It, <laughs> okay. it, I'm not saying that cause I make a living doing that, but it just right. for some reason makes me feel a sense of anxiety and, and uneasy. Oh, okay. And uh, to like a case in point, when the uh, White Stripes came out, mm-hmm. I loved them slash hated it because it didn't sure. have a bass. Right. Did I tell you this story? No. I'll get this. So I got the CD and I uh, like burned it into some computer recording thing. And way back in the day, I recorded my own bass lines <laughs> to the, <laughs> On the White Stripes. To the white stripes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I re-burned the CD and it just said, it was like a CD that said White Stripes plus bass. That's amazing. And I just like... Just for you? Just, just for, for you me. to listen yeah, to? And I, I'd like put it in my car <laughs> and like when I was driving around and you know, my friends would like hop in the car and be like, dude, what? Is this like a deluxe edition? Right, like what, right. <laughs> what white stripes is this? That's amazing. And I'm like, no, I just put some shit on here because it makes, I don't know, it just fills it out a little bit. And like, can you burn me a copy of this? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. hell yeah. That's so now amazing. there's probably like a hundred and something like rogue <laughs> copies of like, right, right. of white stripes plus this bass. Is... <laughs> so when I was at that show and they didn't have the bass, I was like, oh, they're not doing this on purpose. Like mm-hmm. it must be that scenario that I talked about a second ago where their bass player missed a flight or broke their arm or couldn't make it or is double booked or whatever. Uh And, um, you know, they, they only came out and played four songs, Hmm. but halfway through the second song, because I had played that show before and I knew the promoters, I was already texting them like, Hey Chris, I'm at the show. Uh, these Jamestown dudes are great. And I'd love to have a conversation with them. Not because I like wanted to elbow my way into, to like be their bass player, but I just thought, and in my initial email to them was like, "Hey guys, um, sorry to see that your bass player like couldn't make it. I would love to at least just like put my name on the list as a sub, yeah. so that in the event that a show like this happens again, you're not left high and dry." Nice, yeah. Um, and cue my last name of Bearden helped right stick out like a sore thumb when that came through their email because they're like, "Wait." there's a dude with the last name Bearden in the show and he's, is this, are we related to this guy? Like what's yeah. going on? So we start opening a dialogue and, um, the very next day we go to Chick-fil-A, which I had never been to before. Mm-hmm. And over some, uh, fried sandwiches, they're talking about, um, like what they've got going on and their mm-hmm. headspace and musicality of, of kind of ideas they had. And I, we went back to my studio and I played them some stuff that I had done and just, it vibed, you mm. know? Um, and so we just kind of were like, well, shit, I think maybe we should get together and jam over some shit. And so yeah. they came up to the house and, um, I don't know if you ever came to that Hollywood Hills place, but I yeah. had a little jam spot set up and we just kind of goofed around on some tunes nice. and it clicked. And, um, initially they wanted me to play drums for them because oh. that dude that was at the show wasn't a drummer. Oh, wow. You okay. know? And they're yeah. like, yeah, we don't really need bass. Like we kind of want some percussion to hold uh-huh. this all together. Uh-huh. And I was like, you know, for as much as I know what I can and can't do, I don't think that I'm the right fit for this, for mm. one. And for two, um, I also, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like it was 
super calculated, but there was a part of me that was like, okay, for right now, this is kind of a baby band. And I knew having worked with so many artists in LA before that there was a little bit of a snowball effect and a trajectory. And like you said, like mm-hmm. you kind of start playing shows at the room five. Well, you're not right. going to really be drink, bringing your drum set, even though I have before right, the room right, five, right, right. you know, most nine out of 10 gigs, the room five are yeah. going to be acoustic. So right. like, if I'm on drums, I'm not playing that gig. If we're doing this thing, I'm not doing <laughs> oh, that gig. If we're doing smart. this thing, I'm yeah. not doing this gig. Right. But if I hop in on bass, mm-hmm. um, I can, I can be a lot more. Um, is it malleable, ply, pliable? What's the, whatever the word is I'm yeah, looking malleable. for? Yeah, sure. you know, I can maybe more useful. To useful, the yeah. I was yes. like, I can bring the pedal steel to this gig and play that, or I can mm. play acoustic or mandolin or yep. baritone or bass, and like a lot more diversity with, sure. with what the show would call for. Um, and I also knew um, it's like no no disrespect to the other bass players, but I had worked with a lot of dudes in town and I thought, okay, they might bring what they do to this band, but it might not be what like necessarily Jamestown needs from Mm. kind of a soul level. Okay. And I, uh, if I can kind of toot my own, whatever, I felt like I got where they wanted to go. Mm. And then when we did kind of jam stuff together, they were always like, yeah, that's the thing. Yes, cool. do that. Yes, yeah. do that. And it was always kind of like the first gut instinct of what melodic idea I had or tone thing nice. or like where to play or where not to play. It seemed like it just fit. Cool. Um, and I figured, you know, when the time comes and we scale things out and it, it that we, a drummer is needed, we'll like cross that bridge when we get to it. Okay. Um, How many gigs did you guys do as just the trio? Hundreds. Really? Oh yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that. And um, well, I say you were that touring in, too. I say that in that we did for a long time. It was a, a tr- well, there's probably like 200 shows we okay. did or something. I mean, still, that's um, insane. Yeah, that's and I say that because it was for a long time. It was a trio. Okay. Um, hmm. We we would play a bunch of stuff like probably no stomp box or anything. Did they have a no percussion at all? It was just like. Cowboy boots, man. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of those shows that you're talking about at the Room Five, you you might not remember it, but mm. I was probably lurking in the shadows on the far left hand side, still playing bait. Like, right. Right. You know, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and mm. like when we went out and and did um, uh, like the Brandy Carlisle stuff in Seattle, that was all a trio. And you opened for Brandy Carlisle. Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, we, wow. did, we did a couple nights at. Uh, the zoo, I think they have a. Did like you? A park. Was there any representation at this time, or were you guys mm-hmm. all just kind of booking winging it, it, winging totally it, figuring winging it out? It, yeah. How did you get the Brandy gig? Um, no idea. Yeah, I, I think Brandy had somehow caught wind of us, and it was like okay. a personal request where she cool. wanted wanted that. Um, Who was booking these shows at the time? Um, at that time, I think it was. Uh, still rogue like it was i think it was kind of like all... zach or jonathan just mm-hmm. like yeah shooting yeah. out emails and stuff like that yeah yeah mm-hmm. jonathan's very smart he's cool. a very 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 smart guy awesome yeah so you were you were just just hitting the ground uh grinding it out there wasn't really any internet traction happening right um or sync or anything uh, like that no there was no sync because you have a record right? well we there was an ep okay. that zach and john had uh <laughs> recorded in Jonathan's apartment in uh, Austin shortly before they moved to um, Los Angeles. And I don't think that that record is like anywhere to be found online. It's funny because there's a song that we get almost every single night. Somebody shouts out a request from that record that we just haven't played in probably seven years. Yeah. Um, 
excuse me, but um, yeah, the, the, the first couple years, even after we made Utah, mm-hmm. the um, first uh, debut LP, yeah, first full length, uh-huh. there was still a lot of touring that we did as a trio because our drummer, I'm trying to remember how this all shook out. He also played with um, Donovan Frankenreiter. Ed? Ed did. Your drummer, Ed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, he was off uh, being a rock star in Japan or whatever uh-huh. with, with him. And uh, we had an, another drummer that we worked with, Nick Adams, for a while. Um, and he was great. He was a, such a sweet dude and great player. Um, but he was also busy playing with David Cook and I uh, can't remember who else. Ed, what's Ed's last name? Uh, ben Rock. Ed Benrock. So, but he didn't come in until like right before you recorded Utah, Yeah, right? he came in shortly before uh, Utah. So you'd already done 200 shows, grinded it out or so, just as the trio. And then you guys had written a bunch and was like, all right, let's, let's make a, let's make a record. And, or how did that work? It, man, it seems like I'm, I feel like I'm jacking up some of the, the storyline of, of when things happen. But I, if I remember correctly, um, Zach and John had gone around and tried to have some conversations with different labels sure. and they were open to it, but I think they were also just kind of like, uh, we don't really know. Still no management at this time, right? No, no management at this yeah. time. Um, they didn't necessarily know what. Real quick. I want to let you know about two lost Two lost is a new distribution company to the space. And let me tell you, I am very impressed with them. I, I got a full deep dive demo with the founder and yeah they're very innovative and when you come into the distribution space at this stage with how crowded it is you better be innovative and they are yes they will get your music out to spotify apple music all the places plus 450 other outlets around the world they do not take a commission This is why 300,000 artists and labels have already used them they've already distributed 7 million songs They offer payment splitting, and they don't charge your collaborators for this service for the payment splitting. They will just pay your collaborators directly for free. They have publishing administration with BMG, so you know it's legit. A lot of distributors have have fallen into trouble with using some other uh, less-than-legit pub admin services. Well, 2Loss is partnered with BMG. You know it's legit. They offer instant royalty advances. Uh, This is something that's very cool. And if you have historical streaming data and you need just a bulk payment up front, they can see how much your music has earned in the past. I'm like, all right, we think we know what you're going to earn in the next three years. Here's a check for a hundred grand or whatever it will be. And you can just click a button and get that distributed and um, into your account immediately. They do lyrics and credits distribution for free. They have a very innovative analytics platform where, yes, you will see real-time analytics for Spotify, Apple Music, but also Pandora, Deezer, SoundCloud, and Peloton. They're the only ones that do Peloton. Uh, They also have a service where you can search the internet wherever your music is being used, and it will just show you a chart of Everywhere, every TikTok video, everywhere, every YouTube video, everywhere your music is possibly being used. I've never seen this before. That was very cool. They'll register you with SoundExchange, and they have a fraud prevention tool, and they're doing fraud prevention. So if you're worried about your music 
you know, getting a bot attack or something like that and getting ripped down, which we've seen is a big issue. Uh, they have fraud prevention tools that are better than most other distributors that I have seen. Check out Two Lost. You can just go to twolost.com. Use the promo code Ari's Take for three months free and try them out. Let them know what you think. When I say they, like the labels, I think, didn't really know what was going on. Was Mumford & Sons happening at this yes, time? Yes, it was very suspenders and kick drum and suitcase and yeah. hey-ho and banjos. Lumineers, and Lumineers Mumford. And okay, so stuff. I mean, you know, Which, Game Sound is like, you know, in, in the same conversation. It's in the same conversation, but I remember having a conversation about that at the time yeah. that the record was being made. And then it's like, okay, we don't want to... Let's s- not do that. Well, yeah, it was like... Don't have it, the singer songwriter thing was definitely on the downslope, mm, and I think yeah. the the hey ho stuff was definitely on like people were starting to roll their eyes at that. Like, yeah, okay, I'm a little tired of this. Like yeah. every dryer commercial sounded like a, a rip off of hey ho, and <laughs> it just wasn't right. It went from ukuleles to hey ho. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was one of those things where like, okay, we're gonna go make a, a record, and we are, we think in this Americana. Uh, lane, mm-hmm. but we don't want to gutter it too far to the left to be singer songwriter and dismissed mm-hmm. as that. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to be too rambunctious and just like compartmentalize as another hey ho thing. Right. So um, we might have been talking about this last night. It's like we kind of wobbled this fine line in between the two to try to be sensitive enough and thoughtful with the lyrics and mm-hmm. the melody and everything to be um, on, you know, a hat tip to the. The, the song craftsmen people that sure. we all admired and listened to sure. and then have a little bit of energy and like rambunctiousness mm-hmm. and just kind of like wily good time yeah rowdy whatever but not be so much so that it was just kind of like foot stomps right right and Let's so <laughs> even the, the stomp claps and the, yeah. and the yelling of the haze mm-hmm. right. and so like listening back <laughs> to that record now and the whistle it's it it i don't want to say like shocking but i forget sometimes what that record even sounds like and i can personally hear the timid hmm. like we don't really know how this goes yet yeah, you know? yeah but we sure. also had not necessarily played a lot of those songs a whole bunch well, what's cool about about utah about this record is that it um it actually feels fairly timeless mm-hmm. as in a lot of this the americana e stuff that was coming out around that time sounds very timely yeah. meaning like like the lumineers right. or mumford and sons of right. that era and all those other bands that were coming out at the yeah. time that's a very stamp of like 2011 yeah. it's like oh that's the sound of 2011 yep. whereas like you put on utah it doesn't sound like 2011 i think for one the the lo-fi nature of yeah. the the record because you guys didn't really quite know what you're no doing <laughs> yeah Totally. But like that's what that's the charm of it yeah. too, is that you didn't try to be that. It wasn't. It doesn't sound like it was trying to be anything yeah. except just trying to make a great record, which was really cool and, and like serve the song's purpose yeah. and actually just like you know do the songs justice. Yeah. And so you kind of approached it from. It does sound like a record that's approached from like a song focused, song grounded standpoint, just like which let is, the song sing, let's not like yeah. do any gimmicky production techniques that are really right. hot right now, which yeah. would stamp it of that era. Yeah. Um so so how did you record that? You you went to Utah, right? That's why so, it's called Utah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. So that record, um, you know, we had kind of 
kicked around a couple different ideas of where to do it and how to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, all this stuff that we're a a good bulk of everything that we're looking at in here actually wound its way out into Utah and and was equipment. You lugged all your gear. What did you put in a U-Haul or something? It was in a big, huge box truck. Yeah. Um, (laughs) why Utah? Why did you go? Well, um, Jonathan in his family somewhere in the, in the chain, uh, had access to a cabin. Um, when I say cabin, it was a, a sizable spot, sure. big enough for us to lug in all this shit and mm-hmm. set up a studio. But um, we had access to this empty spot in the outskirts of Heber City, which is on the outskirts of uh, Park City, which mm. is, you know, 30, 40 minutes. I mean, it was like sure. an hour and some change outside of Salt Lake. Yeah. Um, so Zach and John rented this box truck and they drove to my, uh, at the time I was living in the Hollywood Hills in the studio that I had there. And every single thing that I owned that could be utilized on a record, whether it was like a <laughs> mouth harp to a adapter cable to, you know, if it made a sound or connected something or plugged right. into the wall, it got put on the truck. Wow. And then they went down to another studio of a friend of ours, Daniel Dempsey, and they got, uh, you know, the tape machine and more outboard gear and the p- upright piano and the fucking f- organ and the piano out there. Oh yeah. Everything. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find a piano tuner? Uh-huh. I'll tell you about that in a second. <laughs> so, yeah, good. Thank you for bringing that up. That's right. funny. That's that's fun part. So, uh, we we hauled out everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I even brought drums of mine. I was like, I don't really know what this Ed guy has. Uh, oh, so you didn't know Ed? I, I had met him and we knew him okay. and, and, and I mean, certainly not to the extent to where we do now. But I of mean, course. I knew that he had some stuff, but I was like, we never know what we're going to need. Sure. And we're going to oh, be yeah, out in the middle yeah. of fucking nowhere. So let's bring all of it. <laughs> right. um, and for as many guitars as there is, I have this same equal amount of bullshit in the drum world. But right. in any event, um, so we piled it all in there. And um, I think they got that. Well, they got there before Ed and I did. And over the course of three days, they constructed a studio out of this cabin where the, the living room had these really cool vaulted ceilings. Um, and it was like this, you know, with the log cabin stuff, there's like really cool natural reflections. Mm. And, um, then they took over the master bedroom and turned that into the control room. Nice. And, um, then Ed and I flew in and in the course of five days, we tracked 14 songs mm. with very little isolation, uh, no click track, no headphones. Whoa. Uh, Just all, live? Yep. All to tape. No shit. Yeah. You so, brought a tape machine out there? Yep. Who was engineering this? Um, Ryan Lippman came out. Oh, he and, did. Yep. Okay, cool. He was helping us. And Daniel Dempsey came out and he nice. was helping us. Um, tracking to tape. Yeah. You know what was really interesting about that? We ha- I, Ryan would know the answer to this. And yeah. I, 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 I wish that I knew what this contraption was. But there was some kind of an interface box where we... we um, we, we were like tracking to tape, but I don't know if it was like simultaneously going to Pro Tools or okay. if we somehow like dumped it from, I know that we would dump it from the tape machine to Pro Tools. Yeah. But there was certain instances where we could go back and for example, like listen to the drums and mm. we could AB analog and digital. Oh, and that was such a cool experience because huh. I feel like I'd been in a studio a thousand times before where we're like only tracking to analog and everybody's like, oh, this sounds so much better. Right. You know? But do you really know what it sounds like? Because have you ever right. been able to compare things? And so to sit there and then hear what we just got through tracking mm-hmm. uh, AB between the two, some stuff sounds beautiful on tape and some like bass really is kind of not that great on analog. It gets oh, a little swimmy and lost in the sure, mix, but sure, drums yeah. are just gushy and beautiful nice. and acoustics get all softened up. But in any event, um, so yeah, uh, 
the drums, uh, I mean, depending on the song, like mm-hmm. California, for example, mm-hmm. the drums, the acoustic guitar, the piano, the bass, and the vocals were all done live. Those vocals are not overdubbed later. Wow. Yeah. And um, things like uh, banjo was done after the fact. Uh-huh. Um, I, When we were done with the record, I took... Uh, everything back or once everything arrived back in Los Angeles, I reconstructed my studio back up and mm-hmm. I overdubbed uh mandolin, pedal steel, B3 organ, mm-hmm. baritone guitar, some acoustic parts mm. um, to kind of like flush things out yeah. around it. And then I know that Jonathan did a couple um, like uh, lap steel or, or uh, electric solo mm-hmm. parts over certain things. So, uh, we, we really didn't want to make it seem like it was, overdubbed too much sure. it was just some things needed a little bit of flushing yeah. out but for the most part it's kind of a like a glorified live record i mean it sounds very live yeah i mean it, but in in a way that it, it still sounds very intentional yeah um we actually created our own reverb um chamber chamber out of the garage really uh, yeah wow. we, yeah we uh we we it was like a i think like a two or three car garage mm-hmm. and we put up some speakers and microphones cool. in the corner and then we snaked down certain stuff and oh, ryan fun. ryan would send like drums or vocals or the whole two track down in there and huh. yeah somewhere on my did phone you have a up, console out there um you... we had no we did not have a console console but sure. we had like a boatload of gear out yeah. there. And we, you know, we, we, we certainly called in a couple favors and, sure. uh, AEA microphones. Um, they're up in, uh, what is it like Glendale or pa- Pasadena, something South Pass. Uh, they loaned us a couple preamps and some really nice, nice. um, the two ribbon mics that we used for all the vocal stuff. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, I, I don't remember. I might've like pulled in a couple favors to borrow some additional microphones from people. Yeah. And we just really, Got so it. you, uh, so this record you did completely independently. Yeah. Um, you had no label, no management at the no. time. Uh, did you try to like shop it first, or just put it out independently? And then when did when did the manager come into play? Right. So the record when we went to go make it, um, Zach and John could correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I I seem to remember it being where it wasn't necessarily the. Uh, full intention of like okay we're going to go make a record and this is going to be our like debut thing that we are super behind and like pushing for this okay like it wasn't we didn't know that the end result let's see how do i say this like we weren't shooting for what we wound up with we just kind of got lucky with what happened Mm. and even at that we second guessed that record for a long time yeah because trying to mix it it, to ryan's credit he (laughs) Probably bleeding he, every channel. Well, yeah. And he, you know, it's like, I, I remember one time explaining it to somebody, it's like, Ryan didn't necessarily mix the record. Ryan did damage control. You know what I mean? And I say that yeah. with like, that That to me is, is my way of trying to illustrate just exactly how much respect I have for him. He's oh, yeah. so, I mean, I'm, I'm Ryan Lemon like, is one of the best. I'm almost like choking up thinking about it because yeah, that dude yeah. is fucking great. He's incredible. Um, but, you know, it was kind of one of those things where we would like zip emails back and forth. Like, hey man, can you turn the snare up? And he'd be like, yep, everything else is coming up with it. Or, you know, like, <laughs> overheads are too loud. Well, no more piano. Right. Um, and uh, literally I did fucking tear up. Mm. Ryan Lippman makes me yeah. cry. Um, so anyways, <laughs> I uh, it it was one of those things where when we were done with it, it was like, 
okay, now what do we do with this? Is yeah. this going to be a demo to then go back to the labels who are like, uh, I'm sorry, who are you guys? What do you want to right, do? Right, right. Um, and if anything, we thought it was going to be something that we could sell at the shows because we were picking up a little bit of traction and trajectory but didn't really have anything to give anybody other right. than an EP that was recorded in an apartment that we weren't playing any of those songs. Right, right. Um, <laughs> and th- like handmade goods that the guys would make to just try to make something at the merch booth. So it was so a could, merch item. It was really a merch item. It yeah. Be. Like okay. they'd, they'd make jewelry and yeah. brooches and shit. Um, so once we had that record back, um, I feel like we were hand stamping and making these CDs and they, you never really know whose hands these things are getting into. <laughs> and legend has it that one of those burnt CDs of Utah with maybe it might've just been like a, a couple songs. I think we released Fur Coat Blues initially ourselves, just very rogue. Just the song? Just the song. You, like online? Online, okay. I think. Um, but I don't remember which came first. But yeah. in any event, somehow a radio DJ mm-hmm. in Texas gets his hands on uh, California and starts playing his it. Physical hands, like this, like a physical CD. Yeah, he's got his hands on. A, he's like, oh, because you hadn't put California online yet. No, no, oh, no, no. Wow. Yeah, he's he's playing that song on the radio, and for whatever small market that it was, it was fun because that song, went unedited, is like like four minutes long or something. Like it's kind of a okay. It's kind of a lengthy a little one. jam in the middle. Yeah, a little, 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 little vamping action yeah. happening. Yeah. yeah. And then we started to get feedback, whether it was that radio station or somebody else, they're like, hey, we'd love to play this song, Yeah, but it's way too long. Mm. Can you edit this down to three minutes and 30 seconds? (laughs) And um, yeah, sorry that this is a repeat story for you, but it's new to the people that (laughs) That are listening. We wound up giving this song, and it created a new challenge because we thought, oh shit, how are we going to do this? Because we didn't do this to click track. There's nothing, there's no grid to snap anything to. Oh yeah. So it's going to make me cry again thinking about Ryan, but we gave it back to the... (laughs) We gave it back to him and Ryan in his just absolute genius was able to take an analog recording with no accountability, which speaks to Ed's impeccable timing. And he lined it all up and, and shortened it to three and a half minutes. And then it kind of got track, no click track. And then it got sent back out to the, whatever radio station it was they were interested in. And and at that point, I think we were kind of, I think people in town were starting to be like, okay, these Jamestown guys are they're they're doing something like yeah. they're they're up to no good in, down in there. town you mean in la in la yes okay um because this this you said a radio station in texas was playing this yeah and okay that's random yeah uh, i guess the guys are from austin originally yeah. so it was kind of hometown yeah. thing maybe yeah um and so you're getting some traction out there was that turning into did you tour out there and it's like shows are filling up we would play yeah we wound up you know, for a long time we were touring around and Zach and John would flip a coin as to who's uh, almost ready to break down car they were driving at the time and right. we tour as a trio then but once things started to kind of pick up a little bit we um, bought this uh, bus this like shuttle transport bus off of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement <laughs> okay <laughs> um, and it was a yeah it was a former prison transport bus that we um we had, let's see, how did this work out? We had, uh, we had bought it and then only had like a short amount of time to rip out all of the, 
diamond plate steel and like bucket <laughs> seats on the inside. Where they, right. And we found like literally two Home Depot buckets full of like razor blades and shanks and other oh, like sharp objects terrifying. that the prisoners had like shoved into little oh spots gosh. to like, oh yeah. And then uh, we barely had time to, to rip those things out. We put some plywood around the exterior, the, the perimeter of the inside of this thing, mm-hmm. piled in some boxes of, of CDs and our gear. And it was just like when we would turn all the gear was just sliding around oh inside of this empty shuttle transport bus. Wow. And I don't, it's too many tours ago to remember where we went, but I think we cycled up and down the Pacific Northwest and over into like Utah. And, um, I think we made our way down to Texas and, um, we really just kind of, some of those rooms we were playing to nobody and some mm-hmm. of them we were playing to a couple people. And, um, wow. that, that I think they, they were able to get some traction in Texas cause, um, mm-hmm. they're just from there and like, they've got a pretty good support system out there, but. And you were selling the CD now, now, mm-hmm. now yeah. you had a CD, so yeah, you we're could selling sell these, that like, to the three people that showed up to the yep, shows. Yeah. We were selling, <laughs> we were selling burnt CD versions right. of the record where we would, uh, hand stamp with yeah. like rubber stamps, the album artwork on the front and the track listing on the back wow. and then Jamestown on the CDR itself. Right. Right. Like when we went and played with Brandy Carlisle, it was two nights each night. There was like 10,000 people there wow. and we're selling CDRs in the merch booth yes. and, and jewelry that Jonathan, like necklaces that Jonathan Fantastic. had made. Amazing. Yeah. It was yes. crazy. So, so you did put, did you, did you distribute it online? Did, was it, did it hit iTunes? This so then, yeah. Well, because um, you put it out independently we, first, right? We, did, we put it out independently, but yeah. we, we had also somehow got a relationship with, in groups, uh, I think. In groups, yes. Yeah, yes, yes, that. yes. Um, and it was sometime around this time that our manager had come on board. Okay. Um, Mark. And Mark, yes. And how that Mark, worked uh, out. Mark Friedenberg. Friedenberg, right. Um, and that, there was a show that would take place at, oh man, what was uh, Jeb's spot in the, uh, the oh, Wits End. end. Yes. Yes. Um, another RIP. In Venice, RIP. Yeah. Both Jeb and the Wits End. Yep. Man, what a sweet, sweet mm-hmm. man he was. Um, so there was this show that, uh, the Greek, gra- uh, Grass, gra- what was her name? Angelique Shepard. Oh, oh, Blue Green Showcase. Blue, blue, blue and Green Showcase. Yes. yes. Um, did you ever go to Michael those? Blue? Right. Well, yes, it was well, Michael they, Blue where the blue came from, they, and then Angelique Shepard did the green uh, something, and they became blue and green. Yes, and I yeah. think his uh, showcases at his studio, the fire marshal had an issue with it. Right? Yeah, do, I've been to a few of those showcases. I used to yeah. do a bunch of those, mm-hmm. and then they wound up moving them to the Wits End. Yeah, and I remember it was kind of one of those things where like it was always packed, but you never got paid. Right. And, you know, <laughs> welcome to LA. <laughs> yeah. And I had played those, you know, cause I was playing with drums with Katie Cole and, sure. you know, guitar with these people. So I'd like done the blue and green showcase with a bunch of other artists, but Jamestown had never done it. And we had enough of a thing going to where Angelique knew that I was playing with Jamestown. So she asked me, she's like, do you think that you and the guys would be interested in coming down and doing the blue and green? Mm-hmm. And I knew that Zach and John might not necessarily be super stoked about doing this show for free and right. asking Ed to drive up from Laguna Beach and drag his drums and do mm-hmm. all this stuff for nothing. But I have not begged and pleaded, but I like really kind of sold it to them. I was like, guys, look, there's going to be people there. Yeah. I don't know who they are, but they're going to be there. Yeah. And, um, so we, uh, they, they were like, all right, fine, we'll do it. So we called up Ed and he's like, sure, I'll do it. And we all slept our shit down to the blue and green and, 
played, I don't know, the two or three songs we were supposed to do, and, and Mark was there. Ah. Um, and I think that opened the dialogue. And cool. he, he kind of saw the diamond in the rough of like, okay, yeah, these these guys got something going yeah. on here. Oh, and, nice. uh, yeah, and thankfully, Mark, you know, it, it, it speaks to a manager's reputation when you're out and somebody asks you like, oh, do you guys have management? Mm-hmm. And you go, yeah. And they say the name and then people's eyes light up and they go, oh, Mark, I, I love Mark. That yeah. guy's great. Like never once has anybody ever kind of taken a sigh or a pause or a hesitation or been like, oh, oh, oh yeah, uh, cool. that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So nice. he uh, he's like the 1% of the managers who have managed to be um, a good yeah. a good guy the whole time. Yeah. And so he, I'm assuming, helped facilitate the in-groups distribution yeah, Mark's, deal. Mark's relationships run... It, very deep. So you put out this record independently with Ingrus, so yeah. just distribution, so they didn't yeah. own anything. Right. They were just taking a, a, a cut. Yeah. And uh, then, but what started to happen, because uh, California started to kind of catch. Yeah. Uh, where was it catching? What was happening with that? Um, honestly, I have no idea. Because I remember, uh, gosh, this must have been, what, 20. 13-ish mm-hmm. or so when you put this out independently, 2012, mm-hmm. 2013, you, you, you played South By yeah. and there was like lines around the block yeah. and this was like, you'd, ju- you'd put the record out independently and, yeah. and like, how did people, people well, found it or so, something? So one thing that did help um, is the TV, we did like a, a, t- a late night TV circuit oh you did yeah we did conan and we did uh oh wow just from releasing this independently mm-hmm. and and oh mark's relationship yeah. run deep well cool. so i don't remember if that was a a call a, a poll from mark or you know, here's here's one thing yeah and this is this is important to the listeners like never mind all the jamestown chit chat that we're having here sure the industry is always paying attention whether you realize it or not. <laughs> and I and I, I always like to use the analogy of uh, whatever the neighbor in, in home improvement was, where they're looking over the fence. Yeah. Like their eyeballs are just high enough to see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And you might feel like you're beating your head against the wall or that you're not getting anywhere with things, but they know what's happening. Mm. And so um, the, the industry was starting to peek over the fence as to what we were doing uh-huh. and they were coming to those hotel cafe shows cool. and they were standing in the back at the room five. And when we were opening for whoever it was, the troubadour at the time, yep. they were up in the upper loft, just like lurking yeah. in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And it turned into a thing where I think one of those hotel cafe shows, the like talent booker, buyer person, mm-hmm. whatever for Conan, um, was there Jim Pitt. It must have been Jim. I know, yeah, it's Jim. He did Conan for 20 years. He's a great guy. Yeah. He's not doing Jimmy Kimmel, but yeah, he was and doing so Conan And so I years. think he went on the website yeah. and saw Mark's info and was like, I'd like to have a conversation. He's so good about that, Jim. Uh, he finds, I mean, he's a music lover. He was booking Conan, music for Conan for, you know, pretty much Conan's entire run. Yeah. And really, he's out there. I see Jim at so many shows around LA. Yep. Small shows too, just like yeah. checking out the talent. Yeah. And now I've, I've gotten to know him we struck up a relationship and a friendship and it's just so cool to chat with him because he really loves music and he'll tell me he's like yeah it's too bad man i thought they were they were going to be great but they're just not ready they're just not ready yet i'm like if they only knew that the that the booker for conan is here right now watching them they'd be doing it differently oh my totally i once saw a band 
train wreck on stage because the lead singer she didn't prepare and she forgot half the words and then like she didn't she couldn't find her capo oh yeah and and like making <laughs> jokes and then like was i brought her gig? like guitar player over to, to human capo the end of her oh, guitar that was me i did that <laughs> right. i remember that show yeah no, <laughs> right right and like i'm like man you know and the place it was sold out it was yeah. a, it was a show um, you know, I think it was at the Moroccan Lounge actually. So there was like 250 people <laughs> yeah. there, and this is a buzzing act, and like they just were not prepared to just it. And Jim is standing right there, checking them out oh. to potentially book them at uh, Jimmy Kimmel at this time. And you know, afterwards, I told him, he's like, "That's too bad. They're just they're not ready." I'm like, and they only knew like you can't. This is not the time for you to rehearse. Like rehearse beforehand. You don't know who's there. Another you know who's valid point for the listeners. Yes. If you're stepping up on stage, yes. Tuck in your shirt. Shoot, <laughs> tune your fucking guitar. <laughs> right. Bring a spare capo. Right, man. All that shit, man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like it was a bummer because I'm like, man, you know, like that was what a missed opportunity. Yeah. But that's why you gotta you you gotta bring your A game every time you totally, play a show, especially totally. in LA. You don't know totally. who's there. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Live discovery still happens, and there people are checking you out. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and it, kind of a, a funny case in point about um, just how quickly slash if there's even a word like wonkily, how wonky <laughs> things were at the time. Yeah, you know when we did Conan, and he holds up the vinyl record and says yes. like, "Ladies and gentlemen, James Sound Revival." Right. That's not a vinyl record. Well, it's just, a piece of cardboard <laughs> that we cut with scissors. Like we went to you didn't Kinko's. actually have a record. No, nah, we had no vinyl. That's amazing. Um, and we went to like Kinko's and like printed out the logo yeah. to the size and like Elmer's glued it. That's amazing. Somewhere I I don't remember if I have it or if yeah. like Zach has it, but we have like the thing that was on Conan, like wow, the, the wow. fake record. Because you have a real record of Utah, but that must have come later. It came out. Okay. Um, we were about ready to head out with the Wild Feathers okay. when we did that, mm-hmm. and um, I think we like the the records were getting printed at that time. Yeah. That whole Conan thing happened real quick. It was yeah, kind of like, oh shit, that's we're cool. doing Conan. Here we go. Right, right, um, right. But that certainly put us into a new set of eyeballs to people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's cool and then because uh then shortly after republic comes into the picture well so i think we yeah i think we did like conan then the wild feathers and then it was south by happened after that uh, so there was already quite a I bit i feel like you were telling me at the time like because you you know the traction was happening and this is itunes era and itunes was doing very well for you guys and in grooves is like they upstream sometimes to Universal. Universal yeah. owns them. And so Universal Republic was kind of taking a look at the numbers of what was happening yeah. and saw that these numbers are bubbling up. And it's like, yeah. huh, who yeah. are these guys? Let's yeah. see what's going on. Now all of a sudden the labels that wanted nothing to do with Jamestown were coming back. And of course, because you had you had built more. it on your own. You had something yeah. going for you. And you had a thousand shows under your belt yeah. or whatever it was. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if it was that many at that yeah. point. But I remember we we there was uh, a... Um, a troubadour show that we booked knowing that the whole upper balcony was going to be all industry. Oh, okay. It was like booking yeah. people and label people and yeah. whatever else, you know, movers and shakers that are there. And I remember mm. kind of thinking to myself, I think we might not have been told until after the fact or something like that. Cause I remember that would have freaked you out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. or maybe we caught word like five seconds before getting on stage. Like, Oh shit. So would you say, um, I, I'm curious because, and, and even to, to jump around a little bit, sure. um, cause you're not with Republic anymore. You were with Republic for two records. Yeah. Um, and 
now you're independent. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that, um, you know, what what was the experience like on a major label? And are you guys looking for another major label? Is this something that you have a good experience? Like, what do you recommend in these situations? Like, what, what was it like to be on a major? I think at the time, and, uh, you know, I, this is a... a, a, a an answer that is much more appropriate for, for Zach and John to answer. Sure. But for, I, I suppose um, being a, a participant in it, my, my take personal takeaway was, um, you know, at the time that that happens, you think this is incredible. Like this is a, a, a bigger machine mm-hmm. that has much more of a larger um, footprint and mm-hmm. impression and ability to just kind of like, and infrastructure. And infrastructure just to just get people, this out yeah. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I really had no idea. I mean, sure. I, I knew that the first record that we put out, we had a, a, a decent amount of placements. And yep. um, and I had thought that that was going to be something that was going to... Sync uh, placements, like TV Sync placements, stuff. yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And so I remember thinking, oh, well, if we're on the, the, the major stuff, then um, we will get even more of that. Right. And, right. um, it was interesting that we didn't. And I think that that was because where we would normally say yes to an amount that would come our way, mm-hmm. the label wanted more. Oh yeah. They would price you high. So it was like, right. I mean, normal like indie placements coming through five, $10,000. Sure. Like that's amazing for an indie band. For us, we're like, well, that's more than we had yesterday. So <laughs> right. yes, where do you. we sign? And then, right, but oh, majors, they're going to want 50, 60, 70, 80. Something. Yeah. Oh, they want to below that. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that, I don't know if that turns off the music supervisor people were like, yeah. no, we're not going to ask them. Or if it's like dealing with them. It seemed like a lot of things mm. of the major would just uh, take longer than necessary. And mm. there was a, there was a lot of people, there's like a committee of people that had to approve of certain things. Mm. And, you know, for, for a lot of that era, I, none of that really had anything to do with me. It's not like I sure. was having to make any judgment calls or. We well, saw you do, you'd film like a, a little behind the scenes video. And yeah. whereas before you could just pop it on your YouTube exactly. this time, like yeah. you had to get approval from there, the, yeah, the there label. Was, there was like lawyers that were always on CC oh, wow. and, and, and sure. approval for clearance of the ability to upload something to YouTube mm. to the writer's credits and blah, sure. blah, blah. blah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, on one hand, it was great because they certainly have the relationships for radio. Like there was a single that came out and um, they would do the whole schmooze thing with the program directors sure. in different markets. And they were tracking like which radio stations were picking it up. And um, they certainly had the strong relationships with like Rolling Stone or other blogs that would write about stuff. Sure. And, um, I don't remember if they had anything to do with when we got on some of the other um, late night stuff because we did another kind of round of things when the second record came out. Sure. But, um, you know, they, they certainly had their, their positive influence. Okay. But I think that to a certain extent, it also just um, wasn't... I... I, I I don't know. I think they did give us some freedom that that we were very thankful for. And, okay. I mean, for example, making the second record that yeah. um, we didn't know at the time how or where or when we were going to make the second record. You know, mm-hmm. we had kind of exhausted the the touring behind the first one, and um, shortly after moving here to Nashville, I popped down to Austin to start writing the next one because the label was like, "Yo, what are you guys up to? Yeah, like, yeah, what, yeah. What's, what's next? Yeah." And so we just slapped some mics up and made kind of a demo recording of. Uh, I think it was. Um, 
Midnight Hour might have mm-hmm. been one of the songs. And we just kind of like sent it off to the A&R guy. And he's like, man, whatever you're doing and however you're doing it and wherever you're doing it, this sounds great. Keep doing that. Oh, cool. Um, and that essential quote unquote demo is what wound up making it actually on the record itself. Fun. Um, and so thankfully, you know, a major, what major label gives a band carte blanche to make a record in a farmhouse in Austin, well, however they want with yeah, no I mean, actual that, producer. That sounds great, but I'm going to push back on that a little bit as in what they did to your first record, which uh, they kind of made you re-record True. three of the best songs on the record yeah. with a producer you didn't know in a very expensive studio. Yes. And those recordings, in my opinion, uh, were the magic was stripped away yeah. from what the original recordings yeah. were on Utah, that magic that you had from that cabin. Yeah. And now you had this like sheen yeah. sounding recording that didn't quite have the, the beauty yeah. yeah, and the yeah. soul and the magic that the first ones did. And that was kind of what they forced on you. A little yes. Bit, right. Yeah. 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 That, um, so maybe everyone learned their lesson for that. You're like, that wasn't a good move. Let totally, them do what they do best. Totally. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't know whose idea it was to pick that producer and pick that studio and sure. stuff. Um, I mean, who knows? It could have been. I know that there was like a chat with Rick Rubin to have him do some stuff. And yeah. That didn't quite pan out. And there's a couple other producers. And I mean, there were some people that we certainly had on our list that mm-hmm. we wished would have done it. And for whatever reason, that didn't line up. And mm. then when it, when it shook out with who it shook out with, um, it just it wasn't necessarily the right fit. And right. I mean, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I do think that there are certainly people that are equally as loyal fans now that discovered us as a result of being a part of the major machine. Sure. Um, and to me, a loyal fan who is a supporter of what we do and they, they, they've spent their hard earned money and they, um, you know, they really kind of shot from the top of the mountain on our behalf. Like, I am thankful and appreciative of each and every single one of those people. Of course. Um, and there very well may be some people that felt like they got alienated or or don't quite understand what we were doing once things got re-recorded, but yeah. I, I don't think that they completely like No, you weren't written off because and, of yeah. that. Because you were still playing shows yeah. and you're bringing it hard live. And I think yeah. that's, you know, that's the thing is this like, Jamestown Revival fans, what was so cool is when I saw you guys last year at the Troubadour doing those three sold-out nights at the Troubadour for the release show, um, you know, it was everyone there knew every song. Yeah. They weren't just there for one hit for sure. or one radio hit or one, one song that they knew. Like, they knew every word to every song. Yeah. And it was because, like, they'd seen you probably five, six, seven, yeah. eight, nine, ten shows yeah. ten times. And it's like when you build it from the ground up, yeah. it, there's so much depth there and people have built relationships with you. So, all right, so the recording, you know, whatever with that, it's like, it's not just about the records yeah. in, you know, the records are great, but it's about the relationship that the fans have with this band that they've been seeing for so many years, yeah. so many shows. And because you guys are so tight live and you brought it, you bring it live every time. Yeah. And because now you've played thousands of shows, it's like, you know, there is that relationship that has been built with the fans over all these years. And so I think that's like one of the coolest things about Jamestown is that people aren't coming for one hit, you know, one single. And that's why you're going to have longevity. So whether you're on a label, whether you're not on a label or whatever that means, like 
that's kind of it doesn't really matter because of how you built it in a little slower way, yeah. grinding it out, playing to three people, you yeah. know, every night for for so long. Yeah. And now you're at this point where like the fans are gonna they're they're with you for life, yeah. which is awesome. Well, I think uh, I was talking to uh, somebody about this over lunch earlier today, where you know, in a way. Um, and I don't want to speak on Zach and John's behalf, but at least for, for myself, the way that I've always viewed records is it, it's like a business card for ideally your live show, you know, yeah. and like it can be its own thing. It's a, it's a snapshot in time and it's yeah. a moment that's captured and, totally. and it's something that you can like sell and monetize. And there is that, but really, um, I think that it is about like the experience in the live show and mm-hmm. how you make people feel and the emotions that they get and all the other blah, blah. But I feel like those people that are with us um, uh, are because they've, they've been to the shows and they've had a positive experience and yeah. they've, um, we, we try to not regurgitate the same thing each and every single time, even if it's three nights in a row that sure. creates like an interesting challenge. We're like, yeah, we know there's going to be people here all three nights. Yeah. How do we make sure that we don't look out from the stage and see them rolling their eyes like, okay, assholes, we heard you do this last night. <laughs> right, right. Tell yeah, a new yeah. joke, guys. You know, yeah, or like yeah. do a new move or right, right. come up with some new solo or whatever. Yeah. So um, that's great. So for <clears throat> um, just to kind of uh, take a left turn, um, you know, I, there's there are a lot of uh, musicians listening to this right now. A lot of freelance Maybe. musicians, right? Oh, hopefully, yeah, right, right. <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of freelance yeah. musicians. Um, we're listening because they're like, well, this is really interesting. Here's this guy who's been a sideman, um, you know, and he jumped uh, in with this project early on and is and has grown with it and and um, you know done the late night things, been all over the world, played thousands of shows, but you know you're still gigging, you're still you know tracking doing sessions and all that stuff what advice do you have for uh giggers for for side men and side women the the freelance musicians out mm-hmm. there who are trying to figure out how to do what you're doing like yeah. how to be in your shoes where you can like be a touring artist be a recording you know session cat like how do you do that how do you do that yeah well um i think first and foremost talent is is important okay but the hang is more important what do you mean by the hang uh, what i mean by that is um don't just focus entirely on your skill set of like ripping through scales mm. or sitting down on the drums and like doing all those guitar center like <laughs> crash boom bang licks you right. know figure out how to be yourself mm. in a comfortable way to where when it comes time to be in a tube of a plane or a hotel or a bus or a van or a Prius or whatever scaled out size that it is that you're around these people, how to get along with people, Mm. how to, if you're the funny guy, scale it back from 10 to like four, Mm. or if you're the know-it-all or you're the, you know, the, the, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. focus on, the group dynamic and your mm-hmm. ability to, uh, you know, as a sideman, your job is to make those in which you're working with sound and be their best. Mm-hmm. And that should also happen off stage. You know, if, if, uh, I guess what it is like, um, support in as many ways as possible, emotionally, as a friend, mm-hmm. as a hang, you know, I, 
I can't tell you how many times uh, I've told like up and coming musicians, like there's a couple just uh, moves that you can do if you go out on your first tour. Like when you, when you guys all hop in the van and everybody's all exhausted and you pull into a gas station and you, you get out, just grab the windshield wiper and wash the windows for whoever's <laughs> driving. Or, yeah. you know, when you pull into Starbucks, like learn what everybody's drink is and pop in and just, it costs you $18 and 78 cents to make your whole van happy. Right. And that goes a long way mm. and that will help with morale. And it'll be like, okay, this dude's just not in it for himself to come out here and like click his pedals and rip guitar solos. And then like put his headphones in and tune out for eight hours in the van and pretend like we're not, I don't even know this guy sitting right, next to me, right, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, it's not just that way in Jamestown, but I feel like in, in any outfit that I've been, in, it's like try to create some kind of a family because you're kind of married to these people. Yeah. You know, you're at arm's length all the time yeah. with these people. Um, but diversify as mm. well. You know, if you're a side guy, um, uh, as much as uh, it sounds like a joke to like, you don't need to be a gear head, but take your equipment seriously. You okay. know, have it be reliable, keep it in tune, make sure your intonation's fine or sure. like in touch and, you know, spend the money to take it to a a, a, a luthier or something to like dial it in. If you're going to be working on this instrument for months at a time or hours every day, make sure that it's in good operating condition because yeah. nothing is more embarrassing than walking out on a sold out show and then having a patch cable that doesn't work oh, or, yeah. a, you know, an amp that's about ready to die or right. something, you yeah. know, like invest, treat yourself like you are a business hmm. and invest in your own business. And, uh, and that goes from, um, you know, you're representing who you're out there with. So not, not in like a shallow or fake way, but like dress the part, clean mm -hmm. up your act, mm -hmm. like, you know, put on deodorant cause you're going to be around people. Right, 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 like, right. You know, it's, it's, it, it sounds so, um, common sense, but you'd be surprised how much of that just kind of hmm. whizzes right over some folks heads of just like, yeah. I don't even think about that, yeah. you know? Um, but try to, I always try to tell people, you know, I'm, I'm a musician and I'm a fan of music and I listen to things outside of, uh, of what, I mean, you've been saying with me for a couple of days, what yep. music have I been playing every day in the morning? Hip hop. Uh, yeah. Right. You think <laughs> old school hip hop. Well, right. Yeah. It's like, right. To me, I listen to that and I learn new pockets yep. and new, uh, swagger and new ways that, that, that I can incorporate that into my own stuff mm. in Americana or whatever, you know? And so, um, just, make it so that you can shuffle between a pop gig mm. and a, a rock gig and the Americana thing mm -hmm. and, and do it genuinely with a little bit of a spin of your own flavor, but mm. also with an understanding of like how to do it somewhat appropriately. Nice. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. That's, that's super helpful. Um, well, uh, I have one final question that I ask everybody who comes on the show great. and that is, what does it mean to you to make it in the new music business? Man. Making it is a... there. I don't think there's a definitive answer for making it. Okay. I think making it is... Um, making it in the new music industry, music business, is um, first step set some manageable expectations okay, and then um, 
determine where you are now with what it would take to get to where you want that to be. Mm-hmm. And then, like you were saying earlier, like audit your own self. Mm. Like what, what steps am I taking mm-hmm. in order to achieve this? You know, mm. the definition of a professional musician is that you make money doing your craft, mm-hmm. whether that's a dollar or a million, you're mm-hmm. still a professional musician in my eyes sure. and should be in, in your own eyes. Mm. So to make it, um, I think is dependent upon what those expectations are. Mm. Um, so it's personal. It's very personal, and you know, yeah. and cause I, I, I guess I might be a little sensitive to that because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and yeah. some people say like, well, you know, when, when you, when you make it or whatever, I'm like, what, what does that even mean? Right. You like, know, I am making I, it. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not, it. <laughs> I'm not killing it. Like I don't drive a Lamborghini, but right. I also do this for a living and it's uh, somewhat sustainable, yeah. you know? Um, so making it to me is, is, uh, don't beat yourself up too much about it, I mm. guess, you know, right, cause yeah. I, I, I just don't let yourself get in your own way of thinking like, I need to be the next Lady Gaga, or right. I need to be the next John Mayer. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you get in your own way trying to do that and that doesn't happen, mm. then you're selling yourself short for whatever it is that you might be capable of doing. Just mm. be, the most important thing is to just be authentic, mm. be genuine. Um, don't be a jerk. Don't burn <laughs> bridges for an immediate advantage for a long-term failure. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, just follow, follow your heart and, and don't follow trends for things, mm. you know, cause mm-hmm. all those people I just rattled off, they weren't copying somebody else. They were being themselves. Right. And, um, I think that, I mean, even just, I hate to keep kind of circling things back to Jamestown, but it's like, I think that is one of the things that has created its success is, um, we've always tried to do things genuinely and authentically because people can smell and see and, and like the bullshit meter just pegs yep. red <laughs> when people are trying to just like skirt the system or yep. buy their way into something or cheat whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, making yeah. it a new music business. Um, yeah. Just, sure. th- just don't give up. Keep, yeah. keep all those motivational posters that you see in the doctor's office yeah. do that but in the music industry <laughs> <laughs> I love it well Nick Bearden thank you so much for coming on the show this thank has been you, great to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features, annual fee, unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your royalties. Check out districtkid.com.